Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Homo Sapiens. Prize goes to the eagle-eared amongst us. Did you notice we have a new theme tune? Welcome to a new season of Homo Sapiens, where we've had a zhuzh, we've had a tidy up top, trimmed the garden, we've given the place a lick of paint, we've got a brand new theme tune, we've got a whole new look, so you can probably see if you look on your little podcast app. This week we are chatting to none other than internationally renowned chef, restaurateur, writer Yotam Otolenghi. Can't wait for you to hear this chat. The man is a delight. That's what's coming up. And I come to you actually from my new house. I've moved house since we spoke last, sitting here in um, my little study that I've got. And outside is my husband. He's unpacking boxes and may have been a little loose with the truth as to what I'm actually doing because I said that I was unpacking in here, but actually I'm talking to you. But so far, he hasn't noticed anything. He's in the shed. Now, the shed can be a bone of contention because there was some form of agreement prior to moving that a lot of the crap in the shed would go in my study. If I got the study, I'd agree to have some crap in the study from the shed. Things like my pottery making crap, as he called it. Now, did I agree to this? Yes. But since I've got in here and made it look all lovely, I'm literally I've put my lamps out, got my pictures on the wall. I don't want I don't want shed crap in here. So I'm hiding out in the hope that he's forgotten and he will just load everything into the shed and it can stay in there. I'm also looking at a log shed that needs to be built, which currently is about forty three pieces of wood and eight hundred and fifty screws that somehow should be joined together to create a log shed to keep logs, you see. It doesn't appear to have any instructions, which not not normally I'm afraid of. My family's an engineering background, actually. The Sweeney's, Sweeney and Blocksage was our ear- earring. I love an earring company. Our engineering company. Anyway, that's my news. How the heck was your summer? If you recall, we sort of did a summer of interviews. So it was me and Alan chatting to the great and the good. The interview we did with gay therapist Nick Fager so many of you wrote in about that it really touched you and I'm so pleased because I completely agree someone then said on Instagram that it was quite heavy on the sort of lingo which is interesting too because you you try not to use lingo too much but apologies for that unbelievably a brilliant reaction to our chat with Frank Holiday and Raphael about living through the AIDS crisis Kind of different kind of episode for us, chatting to someone, hearing their story. We'll do loads more of that because you clearly just loved it all, hearing stories. But let me tell you what's coming up for this new season of Homo Sapiens. We always kind of try and pick a theme 
And I feel like after COVID, there's two things I really want us to do here on Homo Sapiens. I want to get out there. I want to talk to people. We've all been so isolated and it was so lovely having this podcast actually as something that could connect us all. But I feel like it's time to get back out. So we're going to be talking to you, the listeners. I want to go and be able to interview people in person again. I say all this assuming there'll be any petrol left for me to get anywhere. Um, This season all revolves around you. So you need to write to us and tell us who you want us to talk to. What issues are burning for you? Where are you not hearing your voices heard? What would you like to hear people talking about more? Husband walking past window. Heights microphone. He'll never catch me. Um, Homo sapiens is to become a wonderful place for you to discuss the things you want to talk about. And that's what the Instagram's about. The Instagram's had a complete overhaul. We've got a lovely colourful new logo. We've got a lovely colourful new look, which you'll see rolling out over the next few weeks. And that's where you can all go and chat, get all the queer news from all over the world, queer discussion, queer topics. I cannot wait to see how it unfolds. We want to hear from you about what bits you like, what bits you don't. It's hugely exciting. Now, let's have a look at some of the emails. Uta got in touch about KD Lang. Many of you will know Uta because Uta is the person who very kindly made us knitted beanies. Uta says, hi, Chris, just a little note on this lovely episode. Lots of women do enjoy man-on-man action, but perhaps not in quite the way most men imagine. Oh, this is because we were talking about um, it's perceived in the wider public that women don't find man-on-man action attractive. As an example, in fan culture, fan fiction is the one segment widely dominated by women. Large parts of fan fiction are in the genre of slash, revolving around same-sex relationships with the huge majority being gay couples. There are fandoms, e.g. Sherlock, Good Omens and classic Star Trek and loads of others where you will be hard-pressed to find anything but slash fanfic out there. We are entering a whole world of fan fiction. The stories can range from buddy friendship via gay male erotica to proper pornography involving pretty much any kink you can imagine. Go fan fiction. As the old fan saying goes, if it's out there, someone has written fanfic about it. And all of this is almost exclusively written by women for women. So there are literally millions of us out there who are living proof that women do enjoy man-on-man action. Fascinating. All the best and looking forward to the next episodes. Well, here they are, Uta. Thank you so much. Anyway, so then I wrote back to Uta and I just said, Uta, I love you, thank you. I was crap to say women don't like it. And I suppose I meant that it's a widely held myth by TV commissioners, for example, that women don't enjoy it. When you're not making me smile, you're also educating me. Thank you, Uta replied. Hi, Chris, just to make sure I wasn't offended. Hearing you say that actually made me laugh because, as you say, it's such a widespread myth, especially among men. It often makes me think that I hope these men never stumble into certain corners of the internet. Seeing what's going on there might do lasting damage, at least to their view of women, which again might <laughs> might not be such a bad thing. Uta, you are hysterical. Thank you. Sharon got in touch about the episode on cancel culture. If you recall, with Dottie Charles came on and had a chat. Hello, says Sharon. Really enjoyed the episode, especially the chat with Dottie Charles. It was great, that chat, wasn't it? She's just full of energy. One thing that occurred to me while she was talking about being strategic with our outrage, because so catching people up, one of the things that Dottie said as a black queer woman, she has to be selective about her outrage because otherwise she'd be outraged the whole time because often she is the victim of... Victim's probably the wrong word. Uh, the cards are not falling in her direction. That's not even a saying. 
Anyway, I'm going to carry on. In the online communities I am part of, the actual mechanics of cancelling are often carried out by very young people, middle school or high school age, spreading the posts and demanding harsher and harsher consequences. I think many of these are very kids are very socially, socially isolated with cuts to public transport, people learning to drive later in life and fewer public spaces open in general. It can be extremely hard for people under 18 to have any degree of autonomy. That's really interesting, Sharon. Especially if they are queer or stuck in a hostile home environment, taking action online feels like one of the very few ways kids, young adults, actually have some power. But, again, speaking from my own experience, while this kind of internet activism can provide some addictive hits of brain chemicals, it doesn't form connections with the larger community or really nourish the soul of the person doing it. I suspect that one aspect of bringing down the temperature online is creating more opportunities in physical space for young people still in school to organise, explore their principles and develop community links with people who aren't their immediate relatives. That lonely anger needs some place to go. Thanks, Sharon. Hmm, fascinating, Sharon. Thank you. Then Greg got in touch. Hello, Christopher and crew at Homo Sapiens. Hello, Greg. I have been enjoying your podcast for some time now. Greg, love to hear that. In and out of lockdowns, I have even been able to go through the back catalogue and have listened to some really wonderful episodes of guests I have long admired. You have offered some thoughtful and intelligent interviews. Thanks. Pleasure, Greg. Today, it was KD Lang, an artist I have loved since her early country and Western days. Yet another great offering. I would like to just dispute your assertion that somehow being gay in Australia is somehow more difficult. I am 60 years old and live in Melbourne and have been out since my teenage years. Even in the 1970s, I have lived in a progressive and tolerant place with a strong sense of community, lots of safe spaces and a loving support network. Perhaps your Adelaide experience is a little skewed, because I was in Adelaide, you see, listeners. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, Melbourne and Sydney are in fact very cosmopolitan places. I do not suggest that my experience is the norm, but it certainly is possible in the right environment. I think Katie also agreed. Anyway, keep up the good work, Greg. Greg, thank you so much. Um, I actually wrote back to Greg. What I was hoping to do here with this conversation with Katie was to just raise that I'd actually been told by people in Adelaide that was their experience, rather than me saying that's what I think goes on there. Because... um, I think it's sort of important to report on the experiences of people who've lived it rather than moi. So I was kind of bringing it up with KD to, to get her to sort of explain her opinion because she'd obviously travelled loads around Australia far wider than I had. Um, and like you say, Greg, she did dispute it. So I think actually, you know, like she was saying, that even in on Pride marches, the police would join in many, many years ago. So yeah, as you know, Australia file over here. So thank you for that email. Now on to the very exciting guest we have to launch this new season of Homo Sapiens, Yota Motilengi. Now most of you probably know him as the person who's kind of revolutionised a lot of the ways that we eat. He is king of pomegranate molasses. He is often known as this person who kind of came onto the scene and had us all searching for really abstract crazy wonderful ingredients to make his recipes and I think everybody kind of knows that about him but I think the lesser known side of him is that he's a gay man he's a father and he he wrote this incredible article a while back about sort of having to come out again as a father he had had kids via surrogacy and he wanted to talk about it because he wanted to help and create representation and he really fascinates me for many reasons because I think that one thing about food and chefs and if you think about the kind of image of cooking 
can often be very aggressive, very hetero, very male. And Yotam has sort of brought this wonderful, softer energy to the world of kitchens and making food. He's kind of a hippie, really. He feels like a hippie. He's such a kind, wonderful man. And his story is fascinating. He's Israeli-born. He's a Jewish man who set up his whole kind of Ottolenghi empire with a Palestinian chef called Sami Tamimi. And it's really interesting how they kind of represent, they sort of cross so many cultural borders by linking together and creating this food. And the sort of Ottolenghi key core group of people who have set up the restaurants and all of that are this wonderful little queer family, actually. Not everybody, but um, the sort of the core gang who have all worked together since the very beginning, doing it their own way. And I think there is so much that can be learned from that. And actually that filters through into the way that your term parents, the way that he writes and the way that he cooks. It's such a lovely chat. The man is an absolute delight and he's got a brand new book out. Now the book is called Shelf Love and it's from Ottolenghi's Test Kitchen and he's co-written it with Noor Murad. So this is the latest person from his kitchen that he's collaborating with and it's it's kind of about using up the things that are in your kitchen. That's kind of the the idea and quite funny idea that like if you bought that one ingredient a while back for an Ottolenghi recipe this book will enable you to use it again and so it's a really smart idea I really like it so yeah let's go and have a chat with Ottolenghi how are you I'm good very good actually oh very good okay go on well no just because I feel it's been so bad that it, that it just feels good now, <laughs> now because this last uh, I don't know how long almost two years now it feels uh been really shaky yeah and it just feels a bit more upbeat at the moment yeah like during the pandemic I felt that the awfulness was kind of balanced by incredible things that were happening at the same time and mm. and I think everybody experienced that so mm. I've experienced both also on the professional level so the time we were going through with the business was really difficult financially emotionally personally but on the other hand everybody was cooking and everybody was cooking for my cookbooks and there was this surge of um sourdoughs and banana loaves and, yeah. and, and chili sauces that was they were going on on social media and i took that in as a kind of a surge of positivity because this is my world and people that even don't really love cooking or don't cook much and not at normal times started cooking and yeah. engaging in what i think is such an incredible thing to do so that was the other side of it and so i've got a team and we we develop recipes in our test kitchen um in north london and we had to shut down the test kitchen during the first lockdown and everybody started cooking recipes at home it was a real different experience so all of a sudden the cook it was cooking with a purpose rather than oh mm. let's just cook this today because we want to do a column about a uh, kohlrabi or minced pork or whatever we had to cook for ourselves and our families, you know, or, you know, our flatmates, whoever it is, different people have different, different situations. And that became much more real in a sense. And also during the first part of the pandemic, you couldn't get everything you wanted, right? You couldn't yes. get uh, so lots of ingredients. And when you went out, you went out like once every few days, not every day. So the whole state of mind of cooking changed. And, yes. and that was really uplifting. So we did, we had all these Instagram lives and, and demos in our kitchens and, 
And out of that came the book that I've got out now, which is called Shelf Love. It tells the story of like rediscovering your kitchen during the pandemic, you know. So the, all the ingredients that are hiding at the, the very, very deepest, darkest parts of your cupboard and freezers that you kind of just avoid because, you know, that they're, they're probably past their sell by days and, <laughs> yeah. you know, that barley and polenta and, and, um, and a yeah. can of beans and all those kind of things and really kind of learning to love them again. So that is really the upside of the pandemic, I think, that rediscovery. You've always been, uh, there's a funny story about, that makes me laugh about you, which is that you were offered a column, but it was the vegetarian column, right? Yeah. And you didn't know what to do because you didn't think you really <laughs> wanted to do it, do it. Is that right? Yeah, well, so, no, yeah, absolutely. So it was in the, gar- it was the Guardian. It was actually my first, you know, my first exposure really to... It was uh, in 2006, so that is like generations ago. And vegetarianism and veganism were really not that hip, mm. definitely not veganism. So the Guardian said, would you like to write a vegetarian column? And I wasn't vegetarian. And I said, okay, but I was not really that happy about this kind of pigeonholing, holding, you know, like that, oh, shit, so from now on I'm going to be this vegetarian. And also you need to think like back then that – the vegetarian option on the menu was just awful, you know, a stack of mushrooms or something. Or, yeah, always so, a stack, or, isn't it? Always, always a stack. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't make it good, just at least make it tall or something, you know. <laughs> it angered the vegetarian community because they were really unhappy that not one of their own was yeah. writing the vegetarian <laughs> column. And there were a lot of people writing angry emails. And Because I did mention meat occasionally or fish, the thing you, the thing you should not mention in the introduction and 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 I'm really glad that this is not the world we live in now because I think we live in a world which is actually in this world in this at this mo- in this moment people make choices that are mm. much more you know we just talk about flexitarianism that notion that you can actually choose and define your your preferences mm. in terms of like on the I mean a lot of people eat way less meat than they used to but they're not strictly vegetarian Right, and, yeah, and and it's a much and, and and I think it that kind of camp business of either I am or not, or I identify myself as a vegan or a vegetarian. It still happens, but it's just there's way more options to be eating vegetables than declaring yourself a, a vegetarian or a vegan. You can just eat lots of vegetables and eat less yes. meat meat products or dairy products, which I see a lot of people doing, which is much preferable for me because that means. You win people over, you know, they just Mm. eat more vegetables. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
you've always wanted to center food around vegetables, right? Yeah, I mean, for, when Sammy Tamimi, who's one of my business partners, and I, we, we, in, he's Palestinian. He grew up in Jerusalem, and I'm Jewish, and I grew up in Jerusalem. And we met in London at, in the late '90s, and we had so many things in common. You know, being gay, being from Jerusalem, being um, slightly outsiders in the world of food. You know, we had kind of non-traditional way into restaurant and mm. and um we were both kind of creating this visual statement with vegetables so we mm. i think we almost like created the souk you know the jerusalem market yeah. with our with our platters of food i don't think we did it consciously but unconsciously we wanted to make something that looks uh, incredible and vegetables were our tools what we worked with and because we love vegetables and we we noticed that there is so it, it was so dreadful here, you know, in a sense that people just had like they, there was there was just very little, and it was done very so very badly. And as soon as we've started showing how what, how wonderful it could be, uh, every you know people really loved it. And yes. yeah, so I've always had we always had vegetables, uh, and I always felt that that's there's just so much potential, untapped potential. It's interesting you mentioned like being outsiders in a slightly different take because one thing I think that is really lovely about you is that you have a, a sense of gentleness about you that I don't associate with the world of cookery, let's say. I don't know what the mm -hmm. correct word is, but that kind of ultra-masculine environment of being inside a kitchen and yes, chef, and very aggressive. And yeah. I wonder if that was a decision from you to sort of perhaps go against the grain there. I, I don't think I had a choice really because I, I kind of tried to work for a very short time in restaurants in the in Yes Chef restaurant mm. and I I hated it. I've just felt that, that that is just not my place. I felt I felt intimidated, I think, but yeah. it was really difficult. So those Michelin star restaurants that I've tried to a couple of times to um work in in earlier in my career uh were just awful environments. I felt there was just no I mean there's nothing about food and pre food preparation or even the stress of a restaurant that necessitates this is this kind of, you know, mm. it, it's almost like an army or a prison kind of attitude towards, yes. you know, their <laughs> work life, you know, it just doesn't exist in any other department that I can think of. Yeah. And, and I just, I just thought I, and I did have a crisis because I started cooking quite late. I was in my late twenties and I, I thought like the only way into this, world would be through you know those kind of establishments those very regimented kitchens and and when i realized i couldn't physically emotionally work in those environments i thought like maybe i, I really can't be in mm. this industry mm. so i i've after i went through this kind of professional crisis i just realized i, I thought okay so let's i'll try to uh, go and work in other places and i i was lucky because i ended up in rest in restaurants in london that had a different attitude that worked for Roly Lee um, who's had a restaurant called Kensington place in Kensington um, many years ago and another one Lonson place. And these were just much more, they were hard, you know, it, it, it wasn't always nice, but it was just much more about what you were doing than about that maintaining that hierarchy, you know, mm. and he would take time to show you and teach you rather than, you know, bark orders at you and, and yes. expect you to know without even having been shown or explained. So I, mm. uh, I think that I could never have 
created those environments when it was my time to kind of be the the boss and yeah and it just it's, it just doesn't work with my nature either I, I do have a very soft nature you do and i think i i i think but you can tell me i think there's something about queerness at the heart of that you know lgbtness that there's a there's another way, you know, and I think it's really lovely and inclusive to be, we can do all of these things. We can get this food from this kitchen to that table and no one has to shout, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you're absolutely right. I think, and I don't need, I've never called it by any other name apart from just being true to myself. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would never have been able to feel, I, I have this very collaborative nature and ever since I started working in any profession, but I've always felt that I, it needs, it's important that it's a group team, that it's a good vibe, that people are having a good time. That you could have a conversation that it mm. needs to be humane. I didn't, I, I think because I was terrified of the opposite, you know, the opposite yeah. for me is terrifying. It takes me back to my childhood where I found myself in environments where I felt emotionally and physically under threat you know like mm. that's just not my world and that mm-hmm. has it has to do uh with the gay experience even when you don't have a title for it you know mm. or the queer experience it, I, you just feel that this is just not my world mm. and i think you're right that observation it rings true to me and it is when you're talking about those environments of your childhood in what what specifically do you it mean? could be anyway it could be you know like we it's it's a classical it's, it's a thing you know like the PE lesson where it's oh, just yeah. football you know go out and play football and I never liked football or any oh, other team yeah. sports and uh, it's a cliche of growing up gay but it's just so true that mm. I, I felt that I I was I could be like literally physically sick before these lessons where I knew oh, like God, that yeah. is going to be a nightmare because the teacher didn't even teach us anything. Oh, go play ball, you know. And and that for me was was like, God, I wouldn't mind being like in the gymnasium doing a bit of jumping and this and that. But to go yes. f- play football for me was just that was just awful. So yes. so um, and there then there'll be like the youth movement and this and that and the other, you know. And I also had I was in the army as well, and that was another place where I had to experience that. So it's. There were a lot of like you know stations in my childhood and and young adulthood where I I felt like you know a sense of um, I felt scared or or intimidated. Yeah, yeah. and I I just love that you like you just said a second ago you tra- you stayed true to yourself, which you know rolls off the tongue, but it's actually really hard to do. And I I, I just think what your path and all the incredible things you've done is quite pivotal to just that central idea because there's a lovely story about how when you were working as a pastry chef in a restaurant correct me when I get this wrong but you didn't feel like it was right for you so you'd cycled around London to see where somewhere that could inspire you pastry wise and that is when you stopped outside and met Sammy who you created the whole empire with right yeah that's right so I was working I thought oh I'll need to learn French patisserie and I went to work at Maison Blanc, which was a chain mm. of um, patisseries. Anyway, it was quite big. And they had a production unit in Park Royal, 
in London and it was a very industrial kind of environment. Again, yes. it was, it was just, it was like working in refrigeration temperature because temperatures, because everything had to be like at six degrees max and it was night shifts and there was a conveyor belt and it just took all the joy out of what I felt baking and making patisserie would mean. Like the yeah. strawberry tarts would arrive on a conveyor belt and you put the strawberry and then the next one would come and it's just, it just wasn't right. And yeah, I did have a crisis because I really want to be a pastry chef. And I thought like, is, is that the only option? Mm. And then I took my scooter and I was riding it. And I was in um, Walton Street in Knightsbridge. And um, there was a beautiful patisserie window in a place called Baker and Spice. And I just thought like, that's where I want to work. It's just like this local neighborhood patisserie. Of course, it's London, so it's not Paris, so it has to be Knightsbridge at that yeah. time. You know, now it's completely different. You do have a lot of cool patisseries in, in other places. But I walked in and I said, like, are you looking for someone? And the manager wasn't there. And uh, so I, I did meet Sammy. He was cooking there, doing uh, takeaway food, amazing food. I saw that as soon as I came in. And, mm. and that's how I met him. And uh, I worked there for a few years. And then he joined me when I started uh, Ottolenghi. Yeah, it's just it's just I think a really beautiful example of like if you think if you think something isn't quite right for you, just have a look around for a better way. You know, don't always accept the rules at the first, which I think is really specific to LGBT. It's so it's so true. And every time, now, like I do a lot of public talks, you know, about about mm. uh, with people where people asks me ask me, oh, what is your tip about someone who's considering a career in hospitality or catering or whatever you call it. Mm. And I say, the one thing is just don't work somewhere where you're not appreciated and have a horrible time. You know, that is just, mm. th that doesn't need to be part of the deal. People yes. will tell you it has to be part of the deal because it mm. works for for certain, um, you know, that's the ethos kind of that keeps yeah. everything working, that you're, you're going to work like a dog for so many years, hate every second of it, but you're going to turn out this incredible chef. But that is just not true. You can become a really good chef. Work. And it's it's very true now. It's much more true than it used to be like 20 years ago. Mm. There's a lot of great restaurants um, that I know of all over London where, where it's you're always going to work really hard. Mm. It's not going to be easy. It's just it's just the nature. It's very physical. It's in the evenings. It's long hours, etc. But you can really feel appreciated, uh, and that things that the things that you do, you do only for the love of food and nothing else, and and good service, and and not for all the other bullshit. <laughs> and and you've sort of you've always stuck by that because I imagine was there a time when someone said, "Well, if you want to go to the next level, you've got to become." a TV chef and you've got to have your own master chef and you've got to chat. Yeah. People I mean, again, with TV, you can choose. So I've done TV. I did guest things on master chef and I, I did this and that, but I've never wanted to do it. I know I don't like the very competitive environments of television. Mm. Uh, I guess for the same reason, I don't feel like I like the bake off, but I don't like, uh, you know, I like master chef less, although I, I don't think master chef is so awful. Uh, I think some uh, there are some American programs uh, that are just really terrible. Where they go in and shout at people. Oh, shout and scream! I think I can't remember what they're called, but um, and uh, but I I, I did a um, travel show, and it is really a, just a very lovely, humane look into how people cook and what they do in their kitchens. It's always been more interesting for me to see home kitchens than restaurant mm. kitchens. Uh, mm. Restaurant kitchens for me are 
not bad. I mean, they could be interesting, interesting but they're not really. as interesting. But I've always been drawn to people's homes. And I did a series for Channel 4 about 10 years ago or eight years ago where I was traveling around the Mediterranean. They had two seasons. And I went to the, the most, I thought, the most interesting eye-opening moments where I went to these um, kitchens of like, you know, Berber women in the Atlas Mountains making couscous together or 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 in Sicily with um, Italian women showing me how to make airy ricotta dumplings. You know, those kind of things that are, for me, mm. they're so valuable because even though I've, tr- tr- I've translated my food into kind of restaurants and delis, etc., I've always thought that the best, best things come out of home kitchens and yes. like traditional cooking. I know a lot of innovation goes on in restaurants, Mm. But the things that I want to eat are always in someone's kitchen, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Home kitchen than in fancy restaurants. That's really interesting and kind of, I suppose, about connection and family and all those things, isn't it? That's what food does. It's about bonding. Totally. Yeah. And I think these stories, I mean, I love, I love the fact that when I go into a kitchen, I get to break into someone's universe mm. slowly and easy and kind of <laughs> almost like subtly through a common as uh, a common interest without stating it, you know, like, Oh, yeah. let me try that. That is a very subtle way into someone's world. Uh, even if that person would be a little bit um, guarded. Um, and I've had a really good experience when I was doing a, sh- a TV for a show for BBC four about Jerusalem. Mm. And I took James, the director, to a place in East Jerusalem where they were making some incredibly thin pastry. And there was this Palestinian woman there uh, with her family just enjoying the pastries and, you know, having tea and pastry was beautiful. And I just started chatting to her. This was not planned or anything was that she wasn't it wasn't on the research you know it wasn't the yeah. producer didn't know anything <laughs> and and she's her she said uh, would you like to come to my house for a meal and um i said yeah i'd love to and she had to consult her husband it was a bit kind of awkward and i've never been to a palestinian home it was it's mm-hmm. incredible you know you look at you know a, a man in his kind of late 40s who's grown up in Jerusalem, but I really haven't eaten with a Palestinian in Jerusalem in wow. a Palestinian home. Mm. And I took, Je- and we made it happen. And, you know, the next day we went into to the car and we started driving. And I said to Jane, you know, I'm, I, even, I'm slightly terrified. It's not that I think anything will happen to me, but it's just irrational. But I just felt like it's the, it's the other side. It's the enemy. And I've always yeah. never thought about it like, that every individual Palestinian is an enemy, but it just it's that it it just happens to sink in over years. And the the the, the sense of division is so strong, right? Whether you buy into it or not, and do it's so strong. The yeah. otherness, you know, the other, mm. and and even though you completely, I've, I was always very lefty, and I come from a lefty family, and we've never looked at the world from this particular perspective. We tried not to, but it's still deeply ingrained. So I, I, mm. Anyway, just to make a long story short, I walk into this kitchen and it was quite awkward. So she, there was her and her kids and the husband and the sister. It was a big extended family. And it's me and the cameras and the sound person. It, it's just very clunky. You know, it just doesn't, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't flow. And, um, and 
so I said, could I just try something? So there were the pots and I started tasting. And, and as soon as I could ask her questions through food, you know, like mm-hmm. it's just her eyes open and she said, Oh, this is how I make it. And I leave it for right. 24 hours. She made this, this beautiful broth uh, made with chicken. And then she made maftoul, which is a kind of a Palestinian couscous that was cooked in that broth. And then the, the chicken was shredded on top and there was, um, you know, fried almonds going on top of that, like a beautiful platter, incredibly. And that opened up conversations about, you know, her hardships, you know, how she finds it difficult to even go to a hospital to visit her relative because she has to go through checkpoints and with her. And, you know, they're just the hardships of occupation in the West Bank. And Mm -hmm. she would never have told me about it had we not started with the food Mm -hmm. because I'm, also, I'm for her the enemy, you know, I'm a, I'm yeah. a Jewish Israeli, so she would probably not have wanted to talk about that. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's it's incredible, like you say, the power of food. Yeah, and on a deeper level, I think there's something in, in pride for her to be able to provide for you, to give you something from her. It's, you know, there's that's a yeah. brilliant starting point for a conversation, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I think that's it. And also that's the, that's the thing about food, creating food. It's about the, the it's about the gesture of feeding, mm. you know, it's like, it's nice to cook. I like to cook, but with cherry on the icing is the actual feeding, you know, it's yeah. like, it's the giving, it's the looking at someone eating what you've just prepared for them and, and seeing the joy on their faces. That's, I think that's what makes it. That's the end of part one of our lovely chat with Yotam Motolenghi. We've got a part two. Head over to the feed. Have a listen to more fun and frolics in part two. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Powered by Spirit Studios.